Hey folks, it's Jordan, and this is the first episode of a new season of the Ruminant Podcast. While there are good reasons to think that we don't have uh, this kind of collective way of relating to food, the way that other more homogenous, more tradition-oriented countries, such as France and Italy, might have, we still do actually have deeply ingrained uh, elements of sort of national values that shape our eating behaviors in uh, very profound ways. Hey folks, it's great to be back. It's been a long time since the last episode, and I thank you for still hanging around. And look, I'm really excited with the season to come. I've got a lot of great episodes lined up for you. I'll talk a little bit more about this season and a few changes I've made with the show at the end of the episode. Today's main segment features my conversation with Sophie Egan, author of Devoured, From Chicken Wings to Kale Smoothies, How What We Eat Defines Who We Are. Sophie Egan, incidentally, is the daughter of Timothy Egan, who wrote a book called The Worst Hard Time, about the American experience of the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. It was a book I enjoyed immensely and reviewed at theruminant.ca, and that I can recommend heartily. I recommend Sophie's book, too. Not only does it make a case that America has a food culture, which is something that I think a lot of us have a hard time identifying, she reveals a lot of influences on that food culture that I didn't even really appreciate existed. Sophie's book is refreshingly free of prescription. For the most part, she just holds up a mirror that provides reflections that are normally kind of hard to see. After that, you're going to hear from Robin Turner of Roots and Shoots Farm in Ottawa about how to set up a really good pickup point for your CSA. But first up, Sophie Egan on her book, Devoured. Hi, I'm Sophie Egan. I am the Director of Programs and Culinary Nutrition for the Strategic Initiatives Group at the Culinary Institute of America. I'm based in San Francisco, and I'm also a contributor to the New York Times Well blog, as well as the author of the new book, Devoured, From Chicken Wings to Kale Smoothies, How What We Eat Defines Who We Are. Sophie Egan, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Thanks for having me. So, I care about food, Sophie. I'm a farmer, and I just love cooking and eating. I don't know what that makes me. I'm fine with being called a foodie, if, if that's the easiest. But anyway, I think a common question among people like me is, is what our food culture is, like what the American food culture is or the North American food, food culture is, if, if I may include myself. And I think a lot of people like me fret about the answer to that, because I think commonly we have a really hard time identifying that food culture. Um, and I think it's even easy to, to answer that because we're like a country or, or a, a continent of immigrants that we don't really have a, a food culture. But with this book, you're arguing that you, you disagree with that and that you think we do indeed have a food culture or America does anyway in the case of the book. Yeah, this is such a, a great point because when I say food culture or you say what is our food culture, that can feel really vague and amorphous to people. And for good reason, you know, culture is basically the set of values, um, a sort of collective mindset, or as I say, psyche, uh, that a people share. Uh, it's the, the norms, um, the sort of codes of conduct that often are uh, subconscious or, and certainly often are unspoken. It's just the kind of um, rules of the road, if you will. And I argue in my book that, um, you know, while there are good reasons to think that we don't have uh, this kind of collective way of relating to food, the way that other uh, more homogenous, uh, more um, tradition-oriented countries, such as France and Italy, might have, uh, we still do actually have uh, deeply ingrained uh, elements of um, 
sort of national values, and, and you could certainly extend that to uh, North American values, um, that shape our eating behaviors in uh, very profound ways. So while certainly diversity is one of our greatest um, assets as a, a place of, um, you know, the melting pot of, Im- of immigrants and, and also to, um, places that are very uh, open to innovation and constantly changing, um, there are some, some aspects that have been uh, with us from our history and that continue to define um, food choices and ways of looking at food uh, today more than perhaps ever before. And I, I trace those, those ways of relating to food um, to three core values that we hold, certainly as Americans. For sure. And I mean, I'll just say I, I had a chuckle right at the get-go of the book because you point out that, you know, kind of by its very definition, culture is hard to identify because it's just, it's all around us. You know, it's, it's, it's the air we breathe or, or the water that fish swim in or something like that. Um, exactly. As, soon, as yeah. soon as you pointed it out and started offering examples, you start to see, oh, yeah, I mean, not only and, and, and I actually feel like it's there's a bit of an irony. Not only does America have a, a, a defined food culture, but it's actually one of the, the more dominant cultures in terms of its spread in recent you know years or decades kind of around the world. Definitely. Oh, I, I think that's um, great that you that you notice that um, once you actually start to to sort of. Um, see the world around you in a different way. And some people have sort of described after reading the book, it's like, you've gotten in my head, you know, now when I'm in the grocery store or I open the refrigerator, I see it. I didn't see it before, but it is exactly like you said, the air to humans or, or fish to, or excuse me, water to fish, um, stuff that, that sometimes is right in front of you um, that you just take as a given. Um, but the book really peels back those layers of meaning and sort of um, brings into into the light um, these things that actually are, are far more important and, and more um, uh, omnipresent than we maybe ever realized. All right, Sophie. So as you've said, you, you, or as you've identified, there, there are three core American values that, that have strongly inf- influenced and defined American food culture. And those values are work, freedom, and progress. And so let's just kind of dig in a little bit. Sophie, how have American attitudes about work influenced the food culture? So... In the United States, we pride ourselves on our work ethic, and we are known around the world uh, for for that work ethic. And it's certainly something to be proud of. Uh, but we actually outwork even ourselves today in the U.S. about 200 more hours per year compared with a, a roughly a generation ago. And so, so much of our identities is wrapped up in. Um, in, in what we uh, produce with our hours in a day. It's a thread that's very, very tightly woven into our fabric as a country. And so what that means is, is that it doesn't leave a lot of time for other stuff, especially today. And so what, what really stunned me um, was that in the United States, we not only spend the least amount of time of any of the major developed countries uh, cooking food or preparing our own food, we actually spend the least amount of time eating food. And so it's this sense that food is just the fuel um, to get us through our busy days and on to the things that truly matter. Uh, that leads us to basically, um, you know, do everything possible to um, kind of reduce the uh, the amount of time spent really thinking about food, obtaining it at the grocery store, um, and certainly preparing and cleaning up after it, as well as 
um, shoveling it into our mouth. It really has been with us from the beginning. Um, and actually, I, I love this quote um, from the 1800s. A, a traveler visiting the United States from Europe suggested that our national motto be gulp, gobble, and go. And uh, I, I love that because I, I just think, if only he could see us now. Can you, can you talk a little bit, can you give kind of one example of how work, work culture has, has come to, to, to change or define the way Americans are eating? Certainly. So one of the main examples that I share in the book and, and that has uh, really resonated with countless readers is called Sad Desk Lunch. And this is the practice of eating lunch at your desk. Um, and certainly it's not the case for everyone, um, but many of us have been there at, at some point. Maybe it's Sad Desk Breakfast. Uh, in any case, it's this mentality that things are so hectic um, there's so much to be done that you couldn't possibly stop and take 30 minutes and just, you know, sit on the bench and eat a sandwich. In North America today, um, only about uh, 40% of people actually, excuse me, about 40% of us admit to doing this practice. Um, and the rest actually is made up of people who don't even stop at all. And this is this really fascinating phenomena that, phenomenon that is so widespread that actually food companies are designing foods um, to better enable you to eat them while sitting at your desk. So for instance, popcorns, uh, fla popcorn flavors that don't leave a residue on your, on your fingers. Um, they're also seeing, you know, soups um, that are one-handable, um, particularly that are clear, such as a, a kind of a ramen liquid um, that won't stain your keyboard. Those are uh, all kinds of examples of one-handable uh, or sort of um, mess-light food items are being um, introduced or, or expanded in the marketplace uh, in recognition of how common this practice is. Sophie, I really, I really think these are interesting insights because I think it is just it's it's too easy to to look at America's kind of uh, snack-focused style of eating. Uh, or, 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 you know, sad desk lunch culture and see it entirely as a negative. But, but I think what you've done is pointed out with it that, that that stems from something that could be more easily argued to be something positive, which is Americans uh, focus on being productive on, on, on a really mm -hmm. strong, good work, work ethic. And I think that's what's easy to miss when we look at certain aspects of the food culture itself and, and perhaps lament them. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I really think this is one of the patterns in my book that that I found most um, most fascinating was the kind of um, double-edged sword of so many of these um, of these habits you know there's uh, certainly many uh, traits uh, that sort of make us um, or sh let me rephrase some of our greatest traits as Americans are our greatest weaknesses as eaters and it's this, um, I feel, sort of overdue uh, recognition or ability to gain a bird's eye perspective on ourselves and see that these things come at a cost. Um, you know, we may have uh, such and such GDP or we may have, um, you know, uh, quite a lot of disposable income that we've accrued because, uh, you know, as, as on average as a population, um, because we have, have really put work first. 
Um, but you know, that means some things have fallen by the wayside and, uh, you can look at, as you said, it's so much easier in a lot of ways to see, um, other countries, cultures, um, when they're not your own. Uh, and so you do, you look at a lot of the Mediterranean countries and so many of us, um, if you have the opportunity to go to, you know, a Spain or a Greece or Italy or something and, and you see you sort of, oh my gosh, it's so romantic, this idea that they could sit around and have a two-hour lunch and the food is so fresh and it's, you know, and so on. It's a very kind of idyllic life. But, you know, they have enormous unemployment um, or they have brain drain, um, you know, where all the young people feel there's not the opportunities for uh, sort of educational and, and professional fulfillment. So it's really just recognizing um, the trade-offs and uh, and sort of saying to ourselves, well, there are real reasons that we are in this situation. We've put other things as um, as priorities as a society. Yeah, and I think I also think even if one is inclined to to criticize aspects of American food culture, I think you can't begin to change it until you truly understand why those why those aspects of the culture exist. And I think I think that's what you're identifying here. It's really cool. Sophie, we're not going to be able to cover, you know, everything that's in your book, because, um, you, you know, you, you, you cover a lot of really interesting topics. We're not you have a whole chapter on wine culture in the States that was really interesting. Um, you know, we're not going to talk about Soylent in this conversation, I don't think. Um, but I do, I do want to focus on at least one more of the values, uh, that you covered, which is the core value of, of individual freedom, uh, and its influence on the food culture. And I think, you know, I'll start by saying, I think there's been lots of parody of the, uh, American or, or North American coffee consumer who goes into a coffee shop and, and orders a coffee with 18 special distinctions for that coffee. And it's easy to get cynical about that. But as you kind of delve into in your in your in in this section of your book, it's that 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 at least partly reflects um, this American value of or, or emphasis on on choice and and individuality. And so, what I'd like to do first is quickly get you to summarize a study that you cited in your book about. Um, about pens, I guess, uh, really quickly, there were some researchers that went into airports and uh, offered people a free pen if they if filled out a quick survey. And then they offered, uh, when they offered the free pen, uh, there were like four orange pens and one green pen, or four green pens and one orange pen. And and can you tell can you tell us what what the researchers found when when Americans Anglo Americans, I guess, versus um, Chinese or, or South Koreans were offered that choice? Yeah, so what they found was that um, it, time after time, this actually, this study has now been repeated um, many times in other contexts. They found that um, Anglo-Americans are consistently more likely to choose the pen that's not like the other pen. And it doesn't matter. There's not a preference for orange or a preference for green. Um, it truly is which of these is unique. And it is a powerful illustration of this largely subconscious um, desire that is so uh, deeply rooted in, in American, um, really it goes back to the constitution and, and you know, free will and, and free choice, um, that, that is this desire to be distinct from others. 
And, and I'll add, I mean, you cite in the book, regardless of the color of the unique pen, Anglo-Americans in the study chose that pen 77% of the time versus some citizens of China or Korea choosing it 31% of the time, which is <laughs> quite, a, quite a, a revelatory difference. So I learned a new word in your book. What, Sophie, what is chefing and what does it have to say about, <laughs> about uh, the, the roots of American food culture? Yes, this was a new word for me as well. And this comes from a uh, design thinker, a consumer uh, insights expert named Michael Berry, uh, based here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he dubbed this term chefing for the practice of going to food service locations such as Subway or Chipotle. Uh, They're the assembly line style Uh, fast casual or fast food chain restaurants that many of us have experienced. And this is the practice of basically pointing um, to, as you move your way through the assembly line, to the different ingredients and items that you'd like while um, dictating how you'd like them uh, to be mixed into your, into your order. And this chefing is um, really an effort among all of us participating in this massive industrialized food system of uniformity and things that come prepared and are easy to, um, uh, you know, serve quickly and conveniently. It's this way of sort of telling ourselves that this, these meals were made for us, that they were made fresh. Uh, stunningly, people, uh, Mar- um, Michael Berry found that actually just making eye contact with a food service worker um, while you are chefing makes you actually think that the food tastes better and tastes more fresh. Uh, so really it is this goal to um, have our meals um, personally created for us in a way that is going to maximize our bang for our buck and also just the, the taste preferences and perhaps even, you know, allergies or or health considerations that we may have as individuals while operating in the reality of a, uh, of a food system that is set up to do the exact opposite of that. So I'm glad you touched on that because let's, let's talk about that because this is, this is, you know, this gets at sort of an underlying theme of your book, which is that um, while you don't overtly talk about the influence of American business uh, on on the food culture, it's 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 inextricably linked to to a lot of what you're talking about. And so, um, yeah, it just strikes me that, that that this is one of the aspects of your of your book uh, that's a little to me a little more depressing. Which is that it may very well be true that that the the, the American value of of individuality is has really influenced the culture. But in in the, in the example you just described, it almost seems like a false individualism. You know, like like we're in some sort of denial about the the license we have or the control we have over the food that is available to us in the system. Well, I certainly agree. It can be disheartening to think about this, but really, and I, I was um, making the point that, that this, um, we're kind of kidding ourselves to an extent, but my larger point was that our our, our, uh, our desires as eaters are often at odds. And so we want things now, but we want them fresh. We want things um, personalized, um, but we want them now. <laughs> we want them cheap, but we want them to taste good. Uh, so on and so forth. And these 
um, these desires are often butt heads. And it's, um, it's the fact, going back to the premium on productivity and work, it's the fact that convenience and um, efficiency are more important than um, some of these goals as, uh, in terms of quality and taste um, or even um, truly having it our way, if you will, uh, that, that hierarchy is what puts us in the situation that we, that we just described. Oh, that's a good and point. What I mean is, yeah, so what I mean is that the actual um, way to have it your way, and this is, of course, that famous Burger King slogan from the 1970s, um, the real way to have that is to cook for yourself. You can have it when you want it. You can put exactly what ingredients in it you want. You can make sure they're sourced the way that you want. You can add spices or not. You can eat how much of it you want or not. You can eat with or without people that you choose and so on. Um, but so few of us see that. and Or if we see it, it's not worth it. It's not that worth it to spend all of the time involved and getting the ingredients and, and so forth. So it, it's truly this realization that, um, you know, as the number of people um, involved in scratch cooking on a daily basis or the average number of minutes, as I mentioned, um, going into preparing foods continues to go down, um, it's in recognition of, of that hierarchy of needs or hierarchy of preferences, I guess, is a better way to say it. Yeah, and it also seems like a good example of how sometimes these different values clash, right? Um, just, just that in, in, in some Definitely. cases, in, in some cases, it's that it's that you know American tendency towards work that wins out over over a desire for true, you know, uh, uniqueness or individuality in what in what we're eating. And in, in that sense, yeah, then 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 the the chefing at Subway or at the coffee shop becomes uh, like a best case scenario or a, or a coping mechanism or something. Right. It's like a good, it's good enough, essentially. <laughs> right, right. I, Sophie, one thing that is mostly absent from your book was a focus on foodies in America and, and a focus on this reorientation towards local agriculture. And um, something that was completely absent, I think, was the rise of the celebrity chef. And I'm just curious as mm -hmm. to why you didn't focus on that stuff in, in this book on American food culture. There were a number of reasons. Um, the main one is that I really was aiming intentionally for this book to not be just for foodies. Uh, I hope that foodies read this book also, but my goal was to invite a larger, um, sort of cast a wider net, to invite more people into conversations about food. Uh, I wanted this book to be a way, a way in for people who not only haven't even signed up for the food movement, but don't even know what the food movement is. Um, so that was a very intentional goal of this book. The other reason, though, um, is that kind of going back to the beginning of this conversation, this question of can we define a national culture, a national way of, of relating to food in the U.S.? And I was really looking for the things that weren't um, kind of on either end of the uh, of the spectrum in terms of extremes, but that were more of those common threads 
um, throughout our population. So trying to, to cross generational lines, cross geographic lines, and cross socioeconomic lines. And that's a really important part of this, which is that um, there's a lot of work going on to kind of democratize organic, um, demo- you know, make sure that the local farmer's market experience um, is not something only for the elites, but um, at least thus far, a lot of that kind of fresh whole foods um, way of eating has been largely reserved for um, those in the upper socioeconomic brackets. And um, I, in my day job, I work on things that are actually actively trying to overcome that. But at least at the time of writing this book, um, those weren't necessarily, unfortunately, the defining ways yet uh, of our population as a whole. Well, that, that's great. So it segues into my next question, which is, which is that in your book, you, you document a food culture that, you know, among other positive elements, features a lot of uh, examples like eating on the go, eating alone, obsession with calorie counting and micronutrients, and culinary highlights like the Doritos Locos Taco. Um, so in other words, or my take is that you present us with a culture that could easily fill at least some of us with self-loathing. But I get a sense that that a major part of you, this project of yours was actually celebratory, um, and so I just want to ask you if I'm right about that. Is 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 the American food culture something to celebrate, warts and all? Yes, I really I really uh, think that that this book is a celebration, and I'm so glad that that came through to an extent. There are things that I wanted us to. There were examples I used, and and even full chapters where the goal was to help us laugh at ourselves because I felt that only sort of through laughing at ourselves might we be able to um, change some of the things that we're doing that aren't uh, doing us any favors in terms of health or, um, or mental health. You know, a lot of the guilt, a lot of the uh, deprivation and a lot of the extremes oscillating between um, sort of binging and, and um, uh, you know, juice cleanses or something. But I also really wanted to give us credit for the things that we're already doing right or doing really, really well. Uh, And that has to do with that whole melting pot piece, which is that um, the fact that we are um, constantly changing and always seeking novelty, um, the sort of bad side being uh, that we, you know, eat a lot of processed foods and um, a lot of foods that are unhealthy because we appreciate innovation. The, the the celebration side of that is that we're very open-minded as a people. We aren't forced to do uh, to eat the same things or to do things, prepare foods in the exact same ways that they've been done for generations. And that's a, a limitation I I feel of other countries that maybe do have those more easily defined food cultures, um, but it means that they, they miss out on a lot of the, um, a lot of these uh, kind of collisions of cuisines that, to me, makes it, us um, really lucky to live in the United States. Well, Sophie Egan, it's, it's a great book, and so I thank you for writing it, and I, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So guess what, friendos? I have a copy of Sophie's book to give away to a Canadian listener who either retweets a tweet associated with this episode or likes or comments on or shares 
a Facebook post associated with it as this episode. So head to the Ruminants Facebook page or go find at Ruminant blog on Twitter if you want to participate. I'll choose one person and I will send you a copy of the book as long as you are in Canada. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is how I want to distribute my CSA this year. I've moved my farm to a new lease in a new town, and while home delivery worked really well for me in the past, I've been considering a shift to pickup points where customers can gather in one place, grab their veggies, and go. Now, there are lots of different ways you can set up pickup points for a CSA, and so I thought I'd try and talk to someone who's got a little experience doing it this way. Right now, you're going to hear from Robin Turner. He and his partner Jess have Roots and Shoots Farm out in Ottawa. They currently manage a CSA that's roughly 350 shares each week and they make use of pickup points for their system. So here's Robin with some thoughts about how to run a successful CSA pickup. So, um, for, I've, I mean, I've helped manage two different farms before I started our farm, and, um, and on all the farms we've kind of done the same system. And uh, that's just uh, pre, you know, packing each of the types of veggies into different bins and having uh, a labeled sign it shows what people have to take and, and they, they come along and fill their own basket from all this stuff available. Like ideally you want, you want more than 30 people picking up every week at each drop off. And I think we manage that at probably um, over three quarters of our pickups. And a few of them, there's always kind of a debate over whether or not we want to keep them going or, or try and improve them. Yeah, so I would say that the the ideal drop-off is not at someone's private residence. And the reason for that is that you want it in a busy section of town where the, the drop-off itself can sell new customers on the whole experience. And so our, our best drop-off is right downtown Ottawa in, in the Wellington in Westboro. And we've created a relationship with the Mountain, Mountain Equipment Co-op there. And so on Thursdays, they actually give us their, their best parking spot right next to the doors. And, you know, we pull up our truck and we have two tents there. And there's actually two people at that one and almost 100 people pick up. And so we're right on a busy road and there are loads of people walking by that, that kind of want to check it out. And we send a few extra veg so people can buy it and try it. And then all of our CSA members are there and they're all like, you know, chatting with each other and they'll talk to people, newcomers who come along because newcomers come and say, what's going on here? And so, yeah, that's the ideal thing is, is, is getting that, that critical mass of people and a couple very happy hosts who have a good time because it's so busy and who can create more excitement around what's going on. So MEC is a really good, you know, it, that, that's, a, that's a less um, obvious example. But the ones that are really cool that, that work also really well are, you know, local food um, businesses like bakeries or butcher shops um, that that we have a lot of success with because we find them like calling us as the CSA season approaches and they're like, are you guys coming? When we're there, they, you know, they have like 50 people or 40 people rocking up, you know, getting their vegetables and, and at the same time they can... They can buy a bunch of stuff. Private residences um, have a few things 
they like they can be great if they're in a neighborhood with a lot of people and the person who's hosting you know knows a lot of people and 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 it's kind of a fun atmosphere um but the drawback is that it's hard to create excitement around private residence because people feel they have to be quiet and they should stay out of the way um also it's really difficult to find a private residence that can convert into a late fall or winter csa pickup because uh, i mean if you're ever planning to do that in the future then it's a it's a hassle to have to find a different location in the you know in the same neighborhood um and because most people just don't have like a heated garage or, and you don't want to move into their foyer or something um so so that's the challenge but uh but it, but the the positive side is if you can find people that live in a place that want to be the host which is also difficult to find then you can you can really create a long-term relationship where you can really rely on those people to 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 be a great host a and to to then really spread the word about what's going on i mean the the drop and go makes sense when you don't have very many people picking up which which in my mind shouldn't be your goal your goal should be to have lots of people picking up in one spot but that's there's no reason why you can't change that once you know if you have 10 people picking up then then drop and go makes sense mm-hmm. as long as it's in a safe place where you know no one's going to steal the stuff um but like once people get wind of it then it's totally in your interest to have someone standing there who can field questions from passersby because we find we get a lot of customers we get a lot of csa members from people in the area that see what's going on and if you have a drop and go that you're just kind of eliminating that whole possibility that's a, that i guess that's a really big thing is is with what we found over the years is that when people you don't want people to leave a csa uh, pickup with an issue you want that issue resolved before they leave even if it even if it's just like a promise to have something there the next week you don't want them going home and then emailing you and and having to deal with that all the, all that administration and having them be annoyed. So having someone there at the pickup completely it it just offers so many possibilities of resolution. Um whether it's, you know, giving them something else if something's missing or, you know, promising to have that the next week and then having to deal with this pickup person instead of a, you know, a random per, a, you know, a whatever CSA member who emails us. So we we can get a list from a pickup person from a pickup host as opposed to answering 18 different emails. Just every pickup experience has to be great and every and and having someone having someone there is is just is critical. All right. So before I close out the episode, I think I need to update you about my thoughts about the show. A state of the podcast address, so to speak. I enjoy producing the Ruminant podcast. As a farmer, I spend most of my time working alone or with just a few people, and to the extent that my work is connected to others, it's in a fairly localized context. The podcast allows me to connect to and learn from a wider community of farmers and academics, and that's cool. The show also allows me to engage my broader interests in food politics and food security. But the show takes a ton of effort to produce, which is why I've struggled as a full-time farmer to produce it on a regular basis. To produce the episode you just heard, for example, required 8 emails between myself and Sophie's publisher, 4 hours to read her book, an hour of interview prep, an hour on the phone with Sophie, 10 texts with Robin Turner, 25 minutes on the phone with him, and then 4 hours of editing to turn all the raw material into something you might want to listen to. Meanwhile, I've just relocated my farm to a new, much larger lease and I've also got a baby coming. 
it's due in the next couple of weeks. Which brings me to two updates I want to give you about the podcast. The first is that the podcast will now be a twice monthly rather than a weekly show. And I'll now be producing seasons of the show of 10 to 15 episodes rather than aiming to produce year round. In terms of format, most episodes will be like the one you just heard today. A long segment on a broader theme and then something short and punchy at the end that focuses on the practical aspects of farming. The second update is that I'm probably going to launch a fundraising campaign sometime this season, in which I'll ask listeners for a small donation to the show. I spend about $500 a year and many hours producing the show, and after producing close to 100 episodes, I'd like to ask you all to consider making a small contribution. So that's it. Thanks for listening and for tuning in. I've got some great stuff coming down the pipe that I can't wait to share with you. And hey, if you ever want to talk to me, shoot me an email, editor at theruminant.ca. I seriously love hearing from you. I'll talk to you in two weeks, everyone. <laughs> Today I learned I don't need anything to live on Except for a little old you I've met a whole army of weasels A legion of leeches Trying to give me the screw But if we bury ourselves in the woods in country we're no clothes so we never have laundry we'll own nothing to this world of thieves live life like it was meant to be our don't fret honey i've got a plan to make our final escape all we'll need is each other a hundred dollars and maybe a roll of duct tape and we'll run right outside of the city's reaches We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches We'll own nothing to this world of thieves And live life like it was meant to be That is trying to bleed us dry We could be happy with life in the country With salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands I've been doing a lot of thinking Some real soul searching And here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees.